This week on Medical Minefield, Professor of Psychiatry, Carmine Parienti. You know, I wouldn't say that we have 100% certainty that ultra-processed food in itself causes mental health problems. As a scientist, I can only see all the evidence and say, okay, this to me kind of makes sense. In any case, if we can reduce the risk by allowing people to eat better, at a minimum, we are decreasing the risk of having stroke or cardiovascular problem or diabetes, let alone mental health problems. And psychologist Kimberly Wilson. It's very unlikely that any of these associations are associated with an individual food item or an individual meal, even at an individual day of eating. A higher consumption of saturated fatty acids, red meat, salt, high energy intakes are associated with increased inflammatory potential. And then you're thinking about the impact of inflammation and how that might link to things like depression. Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week we're asking, can ultra-processed food really make you depressed? As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question for us or a suggestion, tweet us at MedMinefield. Eve, the whole ultra-processed food debate is going to make you depressed, isn't it? I was just thinking, (laughs) the first thing I'm going to say is, do you know what makes me depressed? Talking about ultra-processed food. People are fascinated. Someone was telling me the other day it's one of the top health search, or the the top health search, Google search. Really? Mm. Not woman gives birth to baby with two heads or spot on my penis i don't have a spot on my penis but (laughs) that was one of the top google searches for a while i was told by sarah hartley who was uh, when she was editing uh, net doctor that was their their most searched term spot spot on my penis interesting i would have thought well you wouldn't go and ask someone would you (laughs) i mean readily yeah anyway we digress Ultra-processed food has been in the news this week. There's a very interesting piece uh, related to an event that happened at Goodwood, the Goodwood Health Summit, and that's that's running in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, and we'll get on to that later. An interesting report on links between high ultra-processed food diets and uh, mental ill health. I think it's a particularly interesting observation, and that, that it is quite theoretical at the moment, mm. but certainly the experts who are talking about it are experts that, that we know well and uh, these are working psychiatrists who mm. are researching the links between quite serious mental health problems mm. and uh, and diets that are very high in ultra-processed foods, poor diets, etc. Yeah. I was actually at the health summit this week um, and one thing that a psychiatrist who was talking there said, which I thought was really interesting, was that he said that for years and years, you know, the medical establishment has not accepted the idea that there could be one cause of a physical and mental health problem and it could be the same underlying cause. So, for instance, when you see somebody who has arthritis and they have also have depression, doctors refer to that as a comorbidity. And, and that means that they have arthritis and they have developed depression as a result of their arthritis um, in some kind of indirect way, as in 
perhaps their mobility is compromised and therefore it's made them depressed. Mm. What this psychiatrist was saying was that, in fact, it may be more likely the case that there is some sort of immune system complication going on and that that is not only causing the arthritis but also causing the depression and that we should be seeing mental health problems in someone with a physical health problem in that regard, rather than just assuming that the mental health problem has developed just because of the physical health problem. He said that what this does is it almost dismisses the mental health problem and makes doctors see it as something that's just sort of by the by and not as important to deal with as the physical health problem. It's almost like, oh, well, of course you're depressed, you've got arthritis. So what's the link with food? He was saying that it's all it is all very theoretical at the moment but but if there is a link between physical and mental health problems therefore what you put in your body i.e. what you eat can affect your mental health directly rather than perhaps it makes you feel a certain way physically and then therefore that makes you feel sad or depressed or miserable oh okay so the theory that the reason that uh it's that chicken and egg thing isn't it because you you know people that have depression may not eat well Mm. because they're depressed and you Mm. don't believe that you, you believe it's a symptom of the of the depression rather than a cause? Yeah, but I think they've done saying? studies on um, people who have never had mental health problems before mm. who then develop them after a long a long period of eating a lot of ultra-processed food. I mean, I always assumed that the link would be because if you... I mean, I'm very in tune to the repercussions of poor body image for mental health. And, you know, we live in a society where being in a bigger body is not only frowned upon, but also, you know, in some cases looked at as being disgusting or, you know, not not the right way to look. And it leads to huge problems with people's confidence. And so I assumed that if you eat a lot of ultra processed food, we know that it's linked to weight gain. It's very easy to eat a lot of ultra processed food in a short space of time. It's linked to obesity. And then perhaps, you know, these people who develop a bigger body because of their diets end up feeling up upset, depressed, anxious about their body image because they feel they don't fit in. Mm. I assumed that was where the mental health link was. Mm. But it seems to be that there's something, well, ex- some experts say there's something else going on. Something chemical. It's, it's Again, it's this idea of something chemical in the additives, in the, in the ultra-processed. Yeah, uh, that's, that's crossing the blood-brain barrier. Yes, that's causing things. Uh, you know, your your uh, Kellogg's cornflakes. Mm. And this idea of the blood-brain barrier has always been very... It's a very kind of old-fashioned medical concept that there's this barrier between the, the brain and the body, basically. And so it's very, very, very difficult, if not impossible, for pathogens, bacteria, whatever, to pass through that barrier mm. and then affect the brain. Well, apparently there is now more recent research that shows that that is not true, and actually, there are lots of ways in which the blood-brain barrier can be permeated. Well, it's, it's not imper- It's not supposed to be impermeable, but you know, for instance, you know, systemic drugs often don't reach the brain. It's very hard to treat things like brain tumors for that reason. Mm. So you know, it's it is a thing, definitely. 
apparently it's a debate. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, look, talking of debates, and let's get back to that. And I really want to, I, I've mentioned this before, but I want to talk about Twinkies later. Okay. So remind me, please. Okay. Talk about the Twinkies. It's my brain box. Right. Um, but the, the debate was raging this week over ultra-processed foods because uh, on, I think it was Tuesday, there was a couple of articles, one in The Times and one in, and one in The Eye, um, a headline in the Times was ultra-processed foods can be good for you, say nutritionists. And this was linked to a press briefing held by the Science Media Centre, good colleagues of ours. And they had rounded up a bunch of uh, food scientists, academics, um, who spend their lives researching foods mm. and working with industry on foods to answer questions from journalists because it's a hot topic, as we've said at the beginning endless articles about it and, and they wanted to as the smc often do they wanted to try and give people the the kind of the mainstream boring science mm. view mm. rather than the eye-catching number one bestseller book view mm-hmm. that often makes headlines mm. and they did this and and uh, you know at the um conference there was some some very sensible things said you know in, in my view for instance, and I'm going to quote from the Times piece, Professor Pete Wilde of the Quadrum Institute in Norwich said that by demonising UPF, there was a risk of alienating food companies who were working on uh, foods that could be healthy but still ultra-processed. He went on to say uh, that the foods could be helping people, giving breakfast cereal as an example. Uh, he said breakfast cereal is often cited as ultra-processed, but part of the processing involves adding vitamins and minerals. If you have uh, children who might have not had any breakfast, a breakfast cereal where they're getting vitamins and minerals is a big step forward. And, I mean, this is a view that I've heard repeated by just about any dietitian ever mm. working in the NHS, people you've never heard of for decades. I mean, you know, fortification is 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 fairly you know it's a fairly standard thing. I think and breakfast cereals are uh, the the number one uh, most common um, way that children get their vitamins and minerals in a day. I mean, I don't, I don't know about that, but, you know, I mean, I, I always bring this up when we talk about this subject, that in the pandemic, the big issue was if schools closed, how many children were going to basically go without food mm. all day. If you look at how many breakfast clubs there are at school and you think about all the kids who don't make it into those breakfast clubs, they just don't eat. You know, I mean, that's really, you know, if, if there's something that's affordable and contains vitamins and minerals, you know, I'm not sure that it's useful to compare it to tobacco as some kind of demonic, this is like giving cigarettes to your children. Is that really what we're saying? Yeah. It's ridiculous. And also, you know, it's very convenient to give a child a bowl of cornflakes because you pour them into a bowl and put some milk also, it's usually eaten with milk. Milk's uh, a great source of calcium and protein. Also, I personally, I you know, I grew up eating breakfast cereal, and you know, it's it's probably not the breakfast cereal. It, but if my mum had been giving me cigarettes, that would be a problem. I might be dead by now. Do you know what I mean? I th- I think it's pretty flipping obvious. You don't need a science degree. I don't have one, but it's pretty. <laughs> You do. You are a scientist. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty obvious that, 
you know, if you, how can you make this parallel? It's insane. And most dietitians will say the tiny bit of sugar that you might get with a bowl of breakfast cereal, okay, maybe it's not ideal. It's worth that small bit of sugar because the child is getting X number of vitamins that they wouldn't otherwise get and mm. the protein and calcium from mm. milk. It, I mean, as, as well, it's, you know, I'm using a polar argument yeah. there. It's not just either children starving and have to be given <laughs> breakfast cereal or, you know, whatever the, the opposite. There's a, there's a spectrum of, of this. And, you know, the, the, the being discerning and realising what is in your foods is a good thing. Uh-huh. Um, if you have, you know, if, if, if you are thinking about what, what you should give your kids to start the day, uh, you know, knowing about what the constituent parts and surprising places that have mm. high sugar, uh, you know, surprising foods that have high sugar contents, etc. blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, so this article I thought was pretty bog standard, you know, ultra processed. I mean, it's stuff that we've run in, in our section yeah. many times. Ultra processed foods can be good for you. Yeah. They can. Yeah, in they fact, can. I think it's just that a fact, was a headline that we ran. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, The Guardian didn't like that at all. Uh, Andrew Gregory wrote this story saying, uh, in fact, that three out of the five scientists on an expert panel that suggested ultra-processed foods were being unfairly demonised have ties to the world's largest manufacturers of the products The Guardian can reveal. Ooh. This is something that I have heard some experts who are sort of on this side of the the debate, I guess, anti-ultra-processed fooders, often bring up the links to global conglomerates that have interests in the food industry in order to sort of dismiss their arguments. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really interesting one. And, and, you know, we spoke to Chris Van Telleken in his book, there's an absolutely... I mean, it's really eye-opening when you when you look at industry links. It's startling when you start to think that all of these scientists are essentially, you know, all their work is being bankrolled by industry who create... The, the people with money to fund research aren't going to be, you know, Natura, who make artisan tomatoes. Which are delicious, by the way. Wonderful, but cost £10 per tomato. Yeah, Natura, if you're, you're interested in sending us anything, then we're, we're <laughs> always welcome. But, you, you know, they're not the ones that are going to have a spare 100k to, no. to bung over to Imperial... Uh, to you know, run a you know a, a bit of research into fibre supplements and whether they could help weight loss or do you know what I mean? Whatever it is that that food scientists are doing, yeah, um, yeah. you know, looking at, at the breakdown of foods or how to make foods healthier. And it doesn't mean that X Professor Blardy Blah from Imperial or wherever is taking a fat wad of cash from Mister Kellogg's and going her. You know that's not how it works. Well, I think that the, my my issue as well is it's the Guardian can reveal bit because it makes it sound like this was hidden, but the conflicts of interest were uh, public. The pu- public, public knowledge. knowledge they have to be. Yeah, and you know I I don't think any of these these experts. I mean the SMC briefings all have the declared conflicts of interest on them. <laughs> And I feel that there's a kind of second part to the story that's missing. So so what impact does that have? I mean, I, I can understand that some research is funded by companies, mm. but, but then what? What does that mean? Yes. What are they implying? There is some evidence that, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, conflicts of interest can affect outcomes of trials that scientists who are working on trials that are funded 
by industry mm. um, can tend to uh, try and, uh, you know, come up with a result that, that is, is wanted. We, I mean, we see this presumably with the, the, the trials of things like donanamab and lacanamab, mm. these Alzheimer's miracle drugs that are, you know, making people drop down dead on the clinical trial. Do you know what I mean? The, 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 the pressure on those scientists perhaps to come up with a, you know, a positive spin on the results. And I think the reverse is also true that, that because the industry, certainly this is, this is the case with medicine, yeah. that because the industry uh, will then own the results, they can choose not to publish them. And I think that that is a bigger problem. It's a very interesting discussion to be had that was not being had in these articles because it just what it does is it sows the seeds of doubt yes anyway considering the fact that we talk about this um endlessly um i still seem to have things to say which means that it's a great topic did you did you hear my tummy rumbling just then no i was thinking about ultra process <laughs> <laughs> well quick we better go to mcdonald's but anyway back to our original point about the links between poor diets and and, and mental ill health which is a really interesting area of science and you know i want to know more about it so next we've got someone who knows all about the subject Joining us now is Carmine Parienti, who is a professor of psychiatry at King's College London. Thanks very much for finding time to talk to us today. Some of your research involves uh, looking at the links between poor diet and mental ill health. And it seems it seems surprising uh, when people say, you know, that ultra processed foods could be causing things like bipolar disorder even. But that's something that actually is is being given, uh, you know, some serious thought in, in psychiatry. Is that right? We're definitely um, appreciating the role of nutrition in mental health much more now than a few years ago. And certainly we're also investigating and trying to understand what are the possible biological mechanisms through which ultra-processed food or bad diet in general can contribute to increased risk of mental health problems. I mean, as a scientist, I also know that the association between ultra-processed food and a bad uh, outcome in mental health are also, they're not all uh, just uh, kind of driven by a direct causation of this bad diet on the brain, although that's definitely one of the mechanisms. And we also know that, of course, people who eat a lot of ultra-processed food may also have a lot of other risk factors for mental health problems because ultra-processed food tend to be you know, cheap and they tend to be uh, associated with other unhealthy lifestyle like uh, smoking or socioeconomic or psychosocial background that is more adverse or difficult. So I think before we go into direct biological links, uh, it's also important to remember that this association also part of that is also explained by just a kind of societal uh, effect. So, I mean, something that's very interesting in this, you touched, just touched on, on this, uh, is about the kind of weeding out cause and effect in, in this. So uh, I'll give you a parallel that you see this very high level of uh, tobacco use in people with uh, schizophrenia diagnoses, don't you? Yes. And other other severe mental illnesses. But would there be any weight to saying that smoking cigarettes caused schizophrenia? No, not with smoking cigarettes. People with schizophrenia or other mental disorders may smoke more for a lot of confounding factors. So obviously, smoking is a way to deal with the stress of being 
for example, having a mental disorder. Smoking, again, is associated with a, a plethora of other risk factors that also are associated with mental health problems. So again, an adverse socioeconomic uh, environment or circumstances. So some, some of, if you like, of these same questions marks apply to the relationship between smoking and schizophrenia. But what we know with ultra-processed food is that if you t- try to test experimentally the direct action of a you know unhealthy bad diet onto the brain and onto mental health, for example, using uh, um, animal model or experimental models, you do pick up signal that there is a direct biological effect of ultra-processed food or component of ultra-processed food that affects the brain in a negative way. In fact, not only the brain, the whole body in a negative way. So we know that uh, ultra-processed food and an unhealthy diet in general will um, increase the kind of inflammatory levels in the body, may affect our gut microbiome. It can also, some of the components have direct effect on the brain. So with the animal studies, what do they actually do? Well, there's a variety of different things that people can do. So they can typically, for example, give a, a diet that is super rich of uh, fat or equivalent kind of component of a ultra-processed food or really high in sugar, so whether they can prevent or reverse kind of biological changes that kind of resemble mental health problems. So going back to the epidemiological studies, I just go back to that smoking and schizophrenia. I mean, it's it's such a high number. I, I can't remember what the percentage, you probably know the percentage of people with these severe mental health diagnoses who smoke, but it's sort of half or more. Uh, you know, so it must be even ha- harder to unpick cause and effect with things like ultra-processed foods because, you know, everyone's got to eat. It's true, but for example, again, one evidence, just to kind of follow up on your uh, example of smoking and schizophrenia, so one evidence that we don't have with smoking and schizophrenia is the kind of longitudinal association. So there's no real evidence that people that smoke a lot early in life have a higher risk of developing schizophrenia later in life. Actually, there is this evidence right, for cannabis. Right. So it's not that, you know, it's not that smoking itself is not, doesn't have the same, if you like, mechanism. It's just a particular cigarette, you know, cannabis is different compared to smoking. So, But even that, that's not clear, is it? Because, you know, there, there is certainly some scope to the argument that people are self-medicating early on in life. Absolutely. And, and that it might not necessarily wholly, I mean, you know, the idea that a psychoactive substance is is triggering mental health doesn't seem sort of beyond the pale but then at the same time you know you have to bear in mind that even that isn't a clear cut case is it so it just i just think it's it just must be so tough to research this in terms of looking at ultra processed foods in 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 humans yes and i think that that's the point i'm making about having kind of consistent lines of evidence all pointing in the same direction rather than having one single study or even one single type of study telling us, yes, this is definitely causative. And, you know, I wouldn't say that we have 100% certainty that ultra-processed food in itself causes mental health problems. And I think there is all of the mechanisms that you said are, are relevant. We do have an association which is longitudinal, so we know that bad diet and more ultra-processed food today will increase the risk of mental health problems in the next few years. And we have the animal studies that point in at least some plausible mechanisms that explain that if you take these ingredients, you actually make your brain or your gut or your body working not as, you know, not as healthy. And so you kind of have an explanation for that. I'm very concerned much more about the fact that we are seeing an alarm signal. So, you know, it is also that ultra-processed food indicates a cluster of risk factors 
that identifies individuals at risk for all of other psychosocial effects. Now, one thing you also have with, of course, in, within this, this kind of theoretical framework is that if you change the diet or if you or in population where the, the standard diet is much more healthier, then you do have a lower risk of mental health problems. So as a scientist, I can only see all the evidence coming from all different angles and say, okay, this to me kind of makes sense that at least some of it is causal, maybe not all of it, but some of it is causal. And in any case, if we can reduce the risk by allowing people to eat better, at a minimum, we are decreasing the risk of having stroke or cardiovascular problem or diabetes, let alone mental health problems. And that's why I think we, we, we do need to intervene at a societal level. People need to be incentivized and, and be allowed to eat good food and healthy food because if, it's, if that's unachievable or unaffordable to a majority of people, that's, you know, the whole society suffers. The counter as well to the idea of improving diet is, is, is again, food is so hard to study, isn't it? So, you know, clinical trials in which you control properly with a placebo are extremely difficult. So really, we're looking at quite low quality evidence, aren't we? So, But we know that there is this very strong placebo effect in things like depression. So if you're given a lot of attention and an intervention and I mean, it's it's likely you will see an improvement, isn't it? So it's a tricky thing to study. Well, I mean, core studies of 20 people are low level, core studies of hundreds of thousands of people that where you look at the longitudinal association between diet style and the type of food they eat and mental physical health outcome are not full evidence, are one of the evidence. I keep back to the idea, going back to the idea that you need Lots of consistent line of evidence pointing in the same direction. The court studies alone wouldn't be enough, and the animal studies alone wouldn't be enough. Together, I think they point in the right direction. But I think you're absolutely right, but you are highlighting difficulties that are across all of science. I mean, a lot of the association between risk factors and mental or physical disorders have only been identified by looking at different evidence altogether. It was the same when trying to understand whether smoking caused cancer which now is considered obviously an absolute certainty. Again, I'm not saying that I'm 100% sure there is a 100% causation as the only mechanism. I do think there is an, an element of people looking for ultra-processed food for comforting in a very stressful situation, which would increase the risk of mental health problems. But I do think there's enough evidence to say that if you can reverse or improve the diet of people, make it accessible, you make healthy food accessible, there is you know, there's enough evidence to say this would have a positive impact, certainly on physical health mm. and, I, and I think on mental health too. Well, it's a fascinating area of research and thanks very much for finding some time to discuss it with us. Thank you. Well, let's quickly go to, to the next guest. I'm still going to talk to you about Twinkies if we have time. Oh, yeah, Twinkie. oh, Twinkies. Twinkies, yes. So who's next? Oh, so we've got on the line Kimberly Wilson, who is a psychologist with a special interest in nutrition. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us today. We've heard a little bit about the epidemiological studies that could link ultra-processed food and mental health problems. I eat a burger and then it may affect my brain. I mean, to me, that sounds absolutely bonkers. Okay, so I suppose the first place to start is that it's very unlikely that any of these associations are associated with an individual food item or an individual meal, even an individual day of eating. 
we tend to be thinking largely about overall dietary quality. And when we think about overall dietary quality, then there are a few items that we can think about. So there is an assessment tool called the Dietary Inflammatory Index that looks at the inflammatory potential of somebody's diet. So essentially, they look at a range of foods and nutrients and then associate that with biomarkers for inflammation in the body. So there is a particular pattern of eating or particular group of foods and nutrients that are associated with a lower inflammatory potential. And they tend to be things like the omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, fiber, the compounds found in fruits and vegetables, vitamins, minerals, spices like ginger, turmeric, and polyphenols found in things like green tea. So a higher consumption of those foods is associated with a lower inflammatory potential. And then a higher consumption of uh, saturated fatty acids, red meat, salt, a high energy intake, so that might be through excess consumption of fats or sugars, are associated with inc increased inflammatory potential. And then you're thinking about the impact of inflammation and how that might link to things like depression. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, we hear this mm. term inflammation a lot, inflammatory potential. What actually is inflammation and how could that be implicated in mental health problems? Sure. So inflammation is the body's, the immune system's response to illness or injury. And it, for the most part, is absolutely essential to our survival. It's how we recover from a cut, a graze, a bruise, an injury. And essentially what you want is for your body to be able to generate a, an immune response. And then once the issue, the pathogen is dealt with, to, to go back down, to be switched off. And there are two kind of quite important parts to this. The first thing is that we used to think that inflammation was, it was like a fire that would kind of blaze up and then it would just die down. But that's really not the case. It's much more like a light switch, which is actively turned on and then has to be actively turned off. And the light switch essentially for um, inflammation are derivatives of omega-3 fatty acids. You absolutely must have these compounds made from omega-3s, EPA and DHA, to switch off your inflammation. So that might be one of the reasons, for example, that a low inflammatory potential diet has omega-3 fatty acids in it, is that you need these compounds, they're called resolvins and maricins, to turn off inflammation. Can I just ask but, about that? Hmm. Because the studies that yeah. I've seen seem to show that when you supplement diets, so using vitamin pills, that you hmm. don't get the same benefit. So what's going on there? So actually, with if we're looking particularly at depression, there actually is a pretty good consensus, but it depends on the dose. So in studies that have looked at supplemental use of omega-3 fatty acids, there is a very specific dosage that is associated with protection against depression. So the supplement has to be about a gram, so 1,000 milligrams of omega-3, and it needs to be at least 60% EPA in order to to get the beneficial effects. And I don't dispute that often people say, oh, you know, I, I, there hasn't been an effect in this study. You really need to look at the dose, the ratio, and obviously the person's baseline status at the start of that supplementation program, of course, of, of looking at their background diet as well. So that seems to be the kind of consensus in terms of omega-3, but there are lots of ways that inflammation in general, whether it's coming through a poor diet or whether it's kind of chronic illness or chronic stress is associated with at least the processes that could lead to increased risk of uh, mood disorders. And what about, what about the blood-brain barrier? Because this is something that I keep reading about that 
is just blowing my mind <laughs> because it's it seems that you know the medical consensus for years has been that it's very difficult for anything to cross that barrier and mm. yet you know what you're saying and others are saying is that this these inflammatory processes can affect the brain yeah the blood brain barrier is really a very interesting and important structure when we're thinking about overall brain health in general so when it's working well it is this incredibly selective you know bouncer at the door of your brain preventing anything potentially toxic or just disruptive from crossing from the bloodstream into your brain however it needs a few things to work well so we know that cytokines which are the molecules of inflammation essentially they are the signaling molecules of your immune cells if you have high circulating levels of those they can loosen the very tight junctions of the blood-brain barrier potentially then allowing things to cross in and stimulating your brain's own immune cells which are called microglia but also, again, kind of coming back to diet, we know that when your gut microbiome gets enough fiber, which is its favorite food, a range, a diverse range of fibers, when they break down and ferment those fibers, some of the byproducts are what are called short-chain fatty acids, and they can cross into the bloodstream, and they can actually help protect the integrity of your blood-brain barrier. And the reason that that's a concern, and again, a reason perhaps that fiber is linked with a low inflammatory potential, is because actually most people in the UK, there isn't an age group in the UK that is meeting the fiber recommendation. Only about 9% of the population is getting enough fiber. So it might be at least one of the potential one of the potential mechanisms might be that we're not getting this protective effect of short-chain fatty acids because we're on the blood-brain barrier because we're not eating enough fibre. Kimberly, could I just ask, talking of fibre, as someone who's tried to up their fibre and has has struggled because it makes me feel quite bloated. You know, I, I do love a bean. I'll eat, I'll <laughs> eat a bean um, but high fiber foods, they, they, you know, Eve, Eve's laughing and she has the I'm same problem. I'm just thinking problem. about how many times we have the exact same conversation. You on this have podcast. the same problem. Yes, I do have the same problem. Any advice? Okay. I, yes, there, there are some things that the research is bearing out that, that can make it easier. So the first thing, so let's assume, like most of the population, that we have a fairly low or insufficient intake of fiber. Essentially, it's like, you need to think about it as like, you've got guests over and you just need to work out, you need to slowly introduce them to these new foods. So if you kind of drop a whole load of fiber onto a microbiome that isn't really experienced with dealing with it, then you're going to likely get kind of strong gastro, gastric symptoms. So you start out really small is one thing. So, you know, don't start out with an entire can of beans, start out with a quarter can of beans every other day and slowly help your gut microbiome to become accustomed to this increase in fiber. Um, but recent research has also indicated that it might be helpful to start first with increasing your fermented foods. So if you first start by, you know, eating a bit more kefir and kimchi and sauerkraut and then sauerkraut. introduce the fiber... <laughs> then it can make it easier. You have kind of fewer experiences of uh, discomfort when you start to introduce that fibre. So start slowly, uh, drink a little bit more water, but also consider 
increasing your fermented foods as well. Drink more water. <laughs> Drink more She's water. always telling me that. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do without you, Eve, when you go to New York? Hey? Right, well, look, we'll um, <laughs> that's that's all my questions, Eve. <laughs> um, Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have you, as always. My pleasure. Cheers. Take care, guys. Thanks so much. Bye. So Twinkies. Yes. Have I told you about this before? The, the Twinkie, Twinkie Defence. Yes. I'm absolutely, I'm just mesmerised by this because, you know, obviously the assassination of Harvey Milk by Dan White was a, a, a huge deal. It happened before I was born. Um, it happened on the 27th of November 1978. Dan White shot Harvey Milk, who was a fellow politician in San Francisco mm. um, at the time. And Harvey Milk was a, a, a huge deal in championing gay rights and Dan White became fixated that he was his nemesis, basically. And he assassinated him. And he also shot the mayor of San Francisco, Mayor Moscone. Dreadful mm. double homicide. Terrible. His defence was one of diminished responsibility. And part of that was that I, I think that he'd separated from his wife or that his wife didn't look after him properly, and that he ended up eating junk food. It's all her fault. And, <laughs> and the, 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 this was the argument, the junk food. Well, I mean, uh, uh, depending on which reports you read, it seems to have been slightly over-egged that that was argued. Um, and, and apparently it was, in reality, it was one strand of the argument which illustrated how stressful and difficult his life was at the time mm. and the fact that he was relying on eating junk food meals all the time right. and not um, in his right mind uh, and not in his right mind and you know it was it was a part of the pattern of mm. behavior that showed that he was n not healthy mm. and mentally well however it it did become sort of popularized mm. i suppose in in folklore that the the twinkies you know the twinkie defense the idea that you know that this junk food diet caused him to murder someone uh, but it's similar to the arguments that, that we're hearing today. You know, what's the cause and effect? And was the junk food diet that he ate symptomatic of, of an overall picture of mental ill health? Or was it something that caused him some somehow that, that he was filled with all these additives and preservatives and junk food, etc., and then lost it and went on to, to murder two people? I and always... I think about this all the time when I, when, when this debate... Uh, yeah. goes on now I always hear people say things like oh I just like I'm buzzing because I've just eaten two packets of chicken nuggets or whatever or and it's all the it's all the chemicals right I think it's an easy link for people to make it seems like it's very logical for some reason that you would eat chemicals and it would go to your brain and make you crazy mm. But interestingly, you know, what Carmine said, that there's many different things mm. pointing in the same direction. But I wouldn't say that we are where we were at with, uh, you know, tobacco um, in the 60s, because initially there were the animal studies and then there were the Richard Dole epidemiological studies that showed that groups of doctors who smoked were, you know, he followed followed groups of doctors. It was in the 70s, doctors. was it? I think it was in the mid-60s, okay. in fact, that they... They saw these these that he followed groups of doctors who smoked and then groups of doctors who didn't smoke 
for long periods of time you know, over many years like five years and there was a vast difference you know like one or two of the doctors who didn't smoke developed lung cancer whereas you know half of the smoking doctors develop lung cancer you know it's night and day yeah that that kind of epidemiological observational data is is absolutely crystal yeah. clear whereas i don't think we're there with I mean, something that Dr. Chris Van Tellican said to me this week, uh, I I thought really made sense. So he did this experiment where for a month he just ate uh, ultra processed Mm. food to see what happened to his body. And he said it really affected his mental health. I expect some of that was probably um, a bit of expectation that he probably thought, oh, this is going to make me feel like crap and then it doesn't make you feel like crap. And not the food that he likes. No, exactly. But he said it made him feel really dehydrated and it made him feel really constipated. And Both those things are going to make you miserable. That then made him less able to sleep. Yeah. And so, therefore, he wasn't sleeping very well. He was uncomfortable. And that's obviously going to make you feel miserable. So, and that sort of makes sense, I guess, that you're, it's it's an indirect link because you're not feeling your best self. Mm. But whether it is true that the microbiome release chemicals and then that fires off inflammation that is linked to our breath, I, I don't know. It's the... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 still to be researched, isn't it? And how do the thing that gets me is how do you, even if there are studies that show inflammation in the brain, the brain is so complex and there's so many different parts of it and signalling pathways, etc. How do we know that that exact signalling pathway is what causes depression? We don't even know what causes depression. So how are we supposed mm. to know that that inflammation is related to a depressive episode? I mean, it's all just very yeah theoretical. Question marks on question marks. I'm off to uh, have a sandwich. Oh, maybe I'll do that too. I should probably have some soup because I'm not very well. Yes. Well, I hope you feel better. Thank you. And you can read all about this in the report in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in the newspaper format uh, on mailplus.co.uk or on the Mail app. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Mindful next week. See you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.